All right, well, I don't know if you're much for courtroom drama, but the courtroom has a good bit of drama to it. Uh, it can be a pretty dramatic place, you know, besides all the movies and TV shows that, you know, you see. You might even think of like our recent Supreme Court hearings or some of the high profile court cases that you would all remember, you know, that glued the nation to their TV screens. And at times watching these, you know, you can just feel the tension in the room, uh, especially when the defendant takes the stand and testifies for themselves. If you've ever been to court for something, even if it's as minor as a speeding ticket, you know, there's still something a little bit dramatic and tense and nerve wracking about standing under a judge and receiving his pronouncement. Not speaking from experience, right? But you know, just saying you might feel nervous. (laughs) No. We've been looking at the life of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, and in this section, uh, it's full of this kind of courtroom drama, tension, and even irony, as Jesus has just been arrested and then now put on trial in front of the religious senate of his day. Uh, We're going to be in Mark chapter 14, by the way, the very um, last part of Mark 14. We're going to start in like verse 53 here in a second. Thus far in the book of Mark... Uh, Jesus has kind of kept a lid on his pronouncements to be the savior of the world, the son of God. Uh, He's been a little bit restrained, even though he's dropped some pretty big hints along the way. But now he's going to sit in front of a grand jury and he's gonna get the chance to testify about just who it is that he understands himself to be. Uh, So we're gonna look at Jesus' trial And then in the verses that follow that you heard about in the kids' video, there's another trial that happens, a little less formal, but it's the the trial of Peter, Jesus' lead disciple. So let's begin with Jesus' trial, uh, Mark chapter 14 and verse 53. It says, And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. So Peter goes into stealth mode here and follows Jesus right into the courtyard of where he's being tried. And the story will circle, circle back around to Peter in just a minute. But let's keep going, verse 55. Now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. Some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. So just to catch you up, what these guys are doing is trying to gather preliminary dirt on Jesus so they can bring a formal charge against him before Pilate, the Roman governor who would actually have the authority to put him to death, which is what they want. You can tell just by reading this part of the story that they are looking for more of an excuse to get rid of Jesus rather than actually examining the evidence for who he claimed to be. It's not a mistake that you want to make, but it's one that they do. And so they begin to twist his words, you know, to attempt to make it sound like he had made threats on their temple. It's not quite what he said. You can read about what he actually said in John chapter 2, 19 later. But the point is the witnesses can't even quite get their story straight. Through it all, Jesus has been totally silent. He's not offered a rebuttal, clarification. And so the high priest is a bit flummoxed by this and he tries to get a response from him. So verse 60, the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? 
but he remained silent and made no answer. You can just feel the tension build as Jesus exercises incredible restraint and poise, right? If somebody's drilling you with all these questions and false accusations, twisting your words, but he's not here to win the case. He's not there to solicit any votes, but he knows what he's doing. He has a plan. He was fulfilling the word of the Lord just as the Old Testament prophet Isaiah foretold of the Messiah. In verse chapter 53, it says, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Now in the face of Jesus' silence, the high priest goes for the heart of the issue. And his plan here, if he can get Jesus to publicly admit that he did indeed, in, indeed see himself as the savior, the deliverer of Israel, as God's own son, then in front of the grand jury, he'll incriminate himself. He'll commit blasphemy and even imply that he could be a revolutionary danger to the Roman Empire. And so, the end of verse 61, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus responds. Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him, to cover his face with a blindfold, and then to strike him and say, prophesy. And then the guards received him with blows. So sometimes you'll hear in popular opinion or perhaps even at university religion classes that Jesus never personally claimed to be the unique son of God or have divine status, that was something his followers put on him later. But that's hard to square with his statement here in this chapter. It leaves little room for doubt about how Jesus viewed himself. His answer to the high priest's question, are you the son of the blessed, which was i.e. God, he says, I am which may even be an allusion to God's own name as revealed you know, in the book of Exodus. If you remember the story, when God appears to Moses and says, hey, you're gonna let my people, you're gonna get my people out of Egypt. And Moses says, who should I tell Pharaoh that sent him? He says, tell them I am has sent you. But Jesus goes even further. He alludes to other significant Old Testament texts like Psalm 110 and Daniel chapter seven and identifies himself as one who is the Messiah. He says, I am the son of God and one day you will see it. This is Jesus, I'll be back moment. And he says, I'll be on the very throne of God, coming on the cloud of God's glory. And in that day, I will be the judge and you will be on trial. <laughs> it's a bold statement when you're tied up and on trial. But when he's under the gun, on the witness stand for his life. Jesus, though having the opportunity to kind of nuance or backpedal, he makes a clear, unavoidable, definitive statement to be God's own son, the rightful judge and ruler of the world. It's a breathtaking claim. 
But contrary to how things appear in this scenario, there's no moment here where Jesus is not still in charge. Everything that plays out in the scene, he's already predicted. If you read back through the book of Mark, three times Jesus has told his disciples in great detail that all this would happen. If you flip back to Mark chapter eight, it says he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. In the next chapter, uh, verse 31, 32 of chapter nine, it says he was teaching his disciples saying to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And then the next chapter, flip the page again. It says, and taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. You see, Jesus knew all of this was coming. He was aware of and in charge of every minute detail in the scene, from the final verdict that the men would reach to the spittle of his accusers, down to, as we'll see in a moment, the vocal cords of a rooster. Even on the day of his death, when the world seems to be at its worst, he is still on his throne. And here we are wringing our hands and biting our nails over the year 2020, over our elections, over the effects of the coronavirus. And I'm not trying to downplay the importance or difficulty of any of those things or say that we shouldn't take action on some things, but you need to know that Jesus has not stopped ruling over the course of history for one millisecond, even on the way to his own suffering and death you think he can't handle 2020? When the world is at its worst, he is still on his throne. Your life is not outside of his control or beyond his command. Uh, there's a Christian detective and investigator named Daniel Walker. He wrote a book called God in a Brothel. And in it, he recounts his attempts to infiltrate brothels and gather evidence so that he could release women and children from trafficking. Uh, he writes this, he said, I had not been conducting investigations into trafficking for very long and being inside a brothel left me feeling vulnerable and afraid. I was afraid of my own sinful nature. I was afraid of perpetrators and corrupt officials who were profiting from organized crime. And I was afraid of going into what I perceived as enemy territory. But then a still voice reminded me that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The words of an old hymn came to mind. This is my father's world. For the first time I saw that the brothel I was standing in was a part of God's creation and that God had in no way surrendered it to anyone. I knew that God was in that brothel before I arrived suffering with the victims, witnessing their defilement night after night and sharing in their tears and that he would remain in that brothel after I left. And though not in an audible sense, I nevertheless heard his command and heard his call to go boldly 
in his name to such places as these to rescue the oppressed, to defend the orphan, and to plead for the widow. So what gave this man the strength and integrity of heart to stand up in the face of extreme wickedness and work against grievous injustice, even when it seemed like everything was against him? Well, he had a deep-seated confidence that even though humans will plot and scheme and carry out terribly wicked plans, God is not absent and he has not abdicated his judgment seat. So often we live frenzied and fraught with fear of the future. And yet the sovereignty of Christ in moments like this, the worst moments in history, the worst moments of your own lives would call us in the words of Psalm 46 to be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth The Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. When the world is at its worst, he is still on his throne. And if you know that he is God, you can be still. And he will be your fortress in the midst of any turmoil. But of course, in the moment, it doesn't always seem like he's in charge. In the story, Jesus' hands are tied, his eyes are blindfolded. But all of this too was part of his plan. He's not just in charge, he's doing something with his sovereignty. He's loving us. Uh, In the words of John Calvin, he said, this also is a pledge of the astonishing love of Christ towards us, that he spared not himself, but willingly submitted to wear shackles on his flesh that our souls might be freed from shackles of a far worse description. Jesus was bound so that we could be free. He was condemned so we could be acquitted. He was disfigured so we could be restored. But in his suffering, the disciples do not get it, that he's still in charge. They don't understand that his plan necessarily involves his suffering and theirs. And so they are not still. They are not able to be still. They all panic and they fall away. And so now the scene shifts to the leader of Jesus' followers, to Peter, who's undergoing a trial of his own down below in the courtyard. Uh, Look at verse 66. It says, And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean but he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. So as Jesus is being tried by a high court 
of priests and scribes, Peter is tried by a lower, far less formal court of servants and bystanders. But he doesn't fare nearly as bravely as his Lord, who's now been tried by his own people and abandoned by his own disciples. Now, Peter's denials, um, they've become quite famous, right? Most people have heard of this story, of Peter denying Jesus, relatively famous or infamous story. But they've also been of immense help uh, to people, to Christians throughout the centuries. I can think of at least five reasons why Peter's denials and their inclusion in, in this gospel are so helpful for us now. At least five reasons. So let me give those to you. First, I think the story of Peter's denials give the rest of the gospel accounts tremendous believability or credibility. So believability or credibility. If, if you're someone here today who is struggling with the truth claims of Christianity, you're skeptical or you're struggling or doubting to believe that these are actually true, maybe this will be helpful for you. I mean, this story is so well known to many of us that it's kind of taken for granted, you know, that all this happened. But if you think about it, this would have been a shocking story for the early churches to hear. I mean, if you were making up a religion in the first century, trying to make up a legendary religion and kind of get it off the ground, why in the world would you include stories of the church's most prominent leaders' dramatic failures? I mean, this is an election year. Think about this strategy. If you're trying to gain a following, <laughs> you don't typically give press time to your most egregious faults. Betrayal of the one that Peter had called his master would have been in this culture about the most serious offense that you could commit. And yet, Mark, who likely wrote under the direction of Peter himself, he includes all the dirty laundry. It's not just this story. There's other bumbles along the way through the rest of the gospel too. So Mark includes it. Peter approves of it being included because, well, it really happened. It wasn't just made up. Why else include this? So believability. Secondly, I think this story also helps us with our own vulnerability. I mean, think about it. This moment had to be hard for Peter to publicize. Mark's gospel would have been read in many of the early churches um, and sometimes in the early churches, they wouldn't always have like a, a sermon or a preacher. They would have someone read some of the early Christian documents, letters from Paul, the gospels. They would read these out loud in their gatherings. And early on, these would be places where Peter had visited or lived or served as a church leader in that community. So I wonder what it was like for Peter to hear this story read while he's sitting there. Or maybe he was the one to read it. And just wonder if the wound reopened for him each time and tears poured out afresh. But what's also likely is that many of the people hearing this read also faced harsh persecution for being Christians. And some of them had perhaps denied Christ themselves under threat of torture. What would it be like to be that person? And to hear this story of the most prominent church leader of your day denying his master and then weeping and repenting. Peter told this story because he knew people needed to hear it. He knew people needed to hear that their leaders had scars too, that they were fallen just like them. Are you willing to give the gift of vulnerability to the people around you?
people who look up to you? Are you willing to share even your failures with them? And then thirdly, I think Peter's denials help us with our charity towards those who do fail, towards leaders who fall and and others. I mean, obviously Peter's cowardice was tragic, but Jesus had made provision for this. The passage tells us with no uncertain terms, he anticipated and predicted this. He knew this was gonna happen. So the question for us is, do we have room in our world for others to fail? Maybe think about those that you are trying to invest in or lead spiritually, friends, neighbors, maybe your children. Do you anticipate and make provision for when they mess up? Do you have a category for that? Do you have compassion on them when they fail, even in big ways? Or are you ready to write them off and wash your hands of them? Or what about those who lead you? Those that you look up to Do you hold them so high in your esteem that if they were to fail, your faith would be crushed as well? I mean, it seems like almost every week now, and even just this last week, there's a report about a Christian leader, one whom I loved, that has some sort of grievous moral failing. And it's always heartbreaking. It's embarrassing to the church. It's tragic. And of course, Christian leaders should be held accountable to a high standard of moral conduct. And yes, there should be consequences for our actions. And yes, some by their lack of repentance will show themselves to be false Christians. But should we be shell-shocked when we hear of Christian leaders who fail, even in grievous ways? I mean, did we forget our own anthropology? Don't we believe that even the best of us left to our own devices are capable of grievous sin and utterly destructive choices. This is the best of the disciples, the last one to hang in there with Jesus using vicious and vulgar language to say that he has nothing to do with Jesus Christ. What if you saw a YouTube video of your most cherished Christian hero using language like that to say something like this? This is not a small thing. So when we see a Christian leader fail, we would do well to have charity and to say, there but for the grace of God go I. Now along those lines, Peter's denials also warn us of spiritual complacency. It's complacency. As we saw last week in the Garden of Gethsemane, three times Jesus invited his disciples to pray with him and warned them of their vulnerability to the temptation to fall away. But you see, to neglect God, to neglect prayer to God is to take a step towards the path of denying him outright. Neglect is not too many steps away from denial. As Paul would write in 1 Corinthians, therefore anyone who thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. It is better to learn to pray and hold fast to God before the moment of crisis arrives. If you are neglecting currently in your life to seek God in prayer and in scripture, then learn from Peter's mistake here because it's only a matter of time before crisis will come. And it's then that our prioritization of or lack thereof in prayer will show itself. But lastly here and perhaps most importantly, I think Peter's denials help us 
in our despondency. In our despondency. Uh, The crow of the rooster, at least the second time, it's like a slap in the face to Peter. It brings him to his senses. And Jesus' words about Peter denying him just come flooding back into his mind in a tidal wave of disgrace. I mean, he remembered that Jesus had said things like, whoever's ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed. So Peter's sense of shame and failure here has to be off the charts. And so he, he falls down and he weeps bitterly. Now it's at this moment, this moment, that the Gospel of Luke tells us that as Peter is denying Jesus, that Jesus turns to look at Peter. He looks at him. It's not clear if this is like from upstairs in the pavilion where he's being tried that he looks down and sees him or maybe he's being brought out of that trial to his next trial and sees Peter on the way. The point is, when Jesus was on trial for himself, he was thinking of Peter. And as he looked at this flailing, cursing, denying disciple, he did not miss a step on his way to the cross for him. Professor David Garland says, Peter thought he would die for Jesus, but he needed Jesus to die for him. Do you see what this means for us? This is good news for us because Jesus has foreseen, predicted, and watched you at your worst, most selfish, cowardly, embarrassing moments. He looked at you and kept on his march to the cross for you. He died for you on your worst day for the messed up sinful version of you that you would not like anyone to ever see. He knew everything you would do and it did not stop him on his march to the cross for you. After all, it's while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us and he looks at you in love just like he looked at Peter. And if you will see his look of love to you, his steps of love toward the cross, even in your worst moment, it will break your heart, but it will heal your soul. No one here, no one here needs to say, I am too far gone. God could never forgive me for this. Because this is exactly why he went to die. So that he could forgive you of that and everything else. Because we have all failed Jesus. We've all shrank back from wanting to be identified with him. I mean, maybe you've never been like interrogated or questioned for your faith. Are you a Christian? If not, no. But we have all distanced ourselves from Jesus at times. We've denied him with our lips or our lives or our love of sin. But you see, he does not stop. He carries on to the cross for you. So if you find yourself buried in the shame of your failure, you need to know that you don't have to stay there because Jesus already saw it. He watched it and he still moved on to Calvary for you. And after Jesus is raised from the dead, uh, spoiler alert, Jesus gets raised from the dead. A few chapters, a couple chapters from now. Uh, The angels tell the women at the tomb, they say, go, tell the disciples and Peter 
that he is risen. Jesus wanted Peter to know that it was not over. His story was not over and neither is yours. Uh, The hymn writer Isaac Watts put it beautifully. He said, thus might I hide my blushing face while his dear cross appears. Dissolve my heart in thankfulness and melt my eyes to tears. But drops of grief can never repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. So to close here, we're gonna enter into a time of confession and reflection in song. Uh, We're gonna give some time for you to think through this passage. Uh, We're gonna stand and we're gonna sing together, but we're gonna sing a song that um, may not be familiar to many of you. So feel free to use this time to reflect, to pray, to confess. Um, We've sung this song at our Monday Thursday services for many, many years now. And so during this time, you're welcome to sing, you're welcome to pray, or if you'd like to pray with someone, you're always welcome to come up front and pray with me or some of our other leaders. So let's pray together. And then we'll stand, we'll sing, we'll reflect, we'll confess that we are just like Peter. So Lord, we do confess that this is our story too. And yet when we failed in our trial, you stood fast in yours. And because of that, we can be your children, we can be forgiven. When we were at our worst, you still went to the cross. And when the world was at its worst, you still sit on your throne. So grant us today grace to receive these truths that we would be helped in our despair, that we would be freed from our shame, and that we would be kept from temptation. We pray all this through the mighty and strong name of Jesus, our Savior and our hero. Amen.